ladies, gentlemen, and of course, everyone in between. My name is Clifton Duncan. This is my podcast. Um, so when I was an undergraduate acting student, it was strongly suggested that I read uh, a book called Poetics, which is Aristotle's classic treatise on constructing a powerful and effective tragic drama, or what he referred to as a tragic poem. And I got maybe a couple of pages in before I gave up on it. Uh, but two decades later, uh, when I revisit the work, I'm stunned by Aristotle's clarity of thought and moreover, his focus on the emotional experience of the audience. Now, it sounds like a basic thing, if you're a storyteller, be it a novelist, a screenwriter, a playwright, you'd think that the primary focus would in fact be on the experience of those consuming the work. But often in modern entertainment, the focus of those creating the dramatic work seems to be appeasing those whose vision of the world aligns with those creators. And the attitude toward the masses seems to be not that they need to be moved, but improved, educated on the importance of various trendy quote unquote progressive ideals. As a result, many of these works may be timely, but they are not uh, timeless. And I doubt much of what's written today will have the staying power of the kinds of works that Aristotle was writing about, which have gone on to endure for thousands of years. So what is it that makes certain works endure? Why do we still study and perform the works of Sophocles or Aeschylus or Shakespeare or Anton Chekhov? Why can I watch films like Casablanca or The Empire Strikes Back or Do the Right Thing over and over and never tire of them? In short, what is it that makes a classic a classic? Well, few people are as qualified to answer this very question as my esteemed guest today, Dr. Victor Davis Hanson, a renowned scholar, teacher, author, political commentator, a farmer, and relevant to this conversation, an historian and a classicist. Dr. Hanson, how are you doing this morning? Very good. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to jump right in because we don't have that much time, and I yeah. want to make sure that I respect uh, all the things that you're doing. So first things first, um, what is a classic? Wait, what makes a work a classic? And why do some stories or dramatic works endure over time while others fade? Now, time is important because superficially a classic is something that outlasts time. I mean, it's... It, it transcends particular tastes and generations. And that means it touches into some archetypes of the human experience. And there's not a lot of them. So if you look at Homer, for example, the Iliad, that's the beginning of Western civilization, the, the archetype decision that Achilles has to make is, why is the world unfair? Why do people who have greater gifts like he does, why does Agamemnon get to have all the gifts and the stuff and he gets shorted? And second archetypal question is, then what do you do about it? Do you pout or do you have, is that principle where you withdraw? But if you withdraw, are there consequences on people you like that depend on you? And so or is that selfish or principle to not to participate in a sham, so to speak? And then to what degree do you, or do you pursue vengeance? And when you destroy your enemy, is that enough? Or should you desecrate his body? And that begins... And there were other epics that were competing uh, with Homer. We know that the little, uh, the little Iliad or the destruction of Troy, they're, they're lost. And it's not just an accident of the classical labyrinth of transmission. It's just as much of what popular tastes were. And I don't mean that in a derogatory term. So, and then when you get into tragedy, there's about eight or nine themes that uh, Sophocles, Euripides, and Aeschylus um, seem to be focused on. And one is irony, that's a, they invent that word, that sometimes 
what you think you're doing will not be what results and that uh, you may think very carefully that you're getting rid of a particular person who will grow up someday and kill you, your son, but you are farming him out and not killing him, which is a good thing if you're a shepherd, but in the process you are creating a chain of tragic um, consequences that will kill Laos. And the same thing about Pentheus, there's irony in that Euripidean play of what we know as the Bacchae, that a young man who's uh, very repressed and wants to stamp out sexuality in women and, and promiscuity and alcoholism, himself is intrigued by that pursuit. And he's shown to have uh, appetites that he can't satisfy. And that was the first psychological, uh, I think, investigations of things like projection or repression in Euripides' plays. There's a lot of that. There's also this idea of religion. The Greeks were very interested on why should we worship gods that seem to be, in some cases, no better than men in the sense of allowing bad things to happen or uh, good people who die young and bad people who live a long time or good people who are very impoverished and bad people are very wealthy. And the answer they came is what most societies do, but not in a, a, a careful, rational exegesis as, as they did in, in their discourses on religion, that there has to be some notion of transcendence. That's the only thing that explains it, that there is a world beyond the one that we can smell or see or touch now. And then somewhere in the distant future, somehow what you do in this brief existence will have ramifications for your soul. So I guess what I'm saying is they were the ones to out, outline what were the chief investigations, worries, concerns of the people. And then they tried to discuss those in different genres so they didn't become repetitive or monotony. So an epic poet, a lyric poet, a tragic poet, a historian, a scholar, a philosopher, they could all, but the themes are the same, but they, they explore and approach them from different aspects and different styles and different genres. It's interesting you mentioned the word uh, transcendence because um, one of the things that has sort of um, underpinned a lot of my conversations lately, and I began to feel this a long time ago, was this sense that um, there is sort of a cultural malaise in much of the art that, that gets produced. When I say that I'm a classically trained actor, you know, I, I my training at Elite Conservatory was uh, in these classics. And even then, this was uh, back uh, over a decade ago, uh, the, the teachers would comment on how they're finding, they're finding it increasingly difficult to find people who are willing to find young people who are willing to embody the great size and scope and depth of these, uh, of these massive characters. Whether we were doing uh, Greek messenger speeches in our text and speech class, you know, there's always that one character who comes yeah. in with just this huge amount of uh, exposition, but you know, how do you make that active? How do you, how do you transmit to an audience the, the, the sheer weight and gravity of the events being described? And, um, you know, I, I, I don't know, I've been trying to put my finger on what it is that that is missing and why it is that uh, that that so much uh, seems to be so empty and so hollow now. And you mentioned the yeah. soul, you know, it, it seems like there was so much um, that the that the Greeks knew, you know, or they were in touch with in terms of spirituality that that uh, that infuses these works that is absent today. Yeah, I think a lot of it was they also presented a political paradox, and that is 
very apparent in Aristotle's politics and in Thucydides' history, especially his famous examinations of the plague or the, the Stasis of Corsaira or the Melian Dialogues. And it's something Plato is a little bit off. I mean, he's very right wing, but he discusses it too. And that is that there is a eternal dichotomy between freedom and equality or fairness and that one wars with the other. If you wanna make everybody the same, then you have to be, you have to be punitive of certain people. They have, you have to limit their freedom. If you wanna let everybody have freedom, there's going to be inequality. And what that magic balances, nobody knows. But modern society, partly because of the great wealth of globalization, they feel that they're deities and they have the ability, if they have the political will, to make everybody equal. So they're at war with all hierarchy. And so for a classically trained actor spends a lot of time and a lot of effort to master Shakespeare or Greek tragedy. And we know that those techniques are transferable to movies, to stand-up comedy. They're, they're, the, they're what made British people, the, the British, the best actors in the world, that type of training. But we also know that it's hard. Not everybody can do it. And therefore, it's an enemy of fairness. So in acting, people will say, well, who are you to say those are something you have to do that? And I found this out in classics where I taught for 21 years at a rural uh, Cal State campus, Fresno, California. And I had all minority students, mostly Mexican, but African-American, a lot of Southeast Asian, a few poor whites that were remnants of the Oklahoma diaspora. And if I could convince them to invest two or 3,000 hours in over their career in learning Latin and Greek, maybe taking a class in French or Italian or German, history, philosophy, and not take any classes in studies. No leisure studies, no peace studies, no environmental studies, no ethnic studies, just, and not that those, they couldn't, they, in other words, to explore those courses through these traditional rubrics of philosophy and history, because those what the, that's what they were then you could turn out a student of any economic background, any race that was better trained, not only than most all the students, but I would say half the faculty. And so it was a very stunning thing to see a kid, four years of Latin or Greek from a very first generation from Mexico, and yet he spoke English and he adopted Ciceronian methods of argumentation, or he would even, uh, I had a, a students that would even try to gesture with their hands in a way that comes from uh, um, Diogenes Laertes and, and classical studies of how to talk and act and posture if you're an orator or a rhetor. And uh, it was amazing. They were much more sophisticated and better trained than their faculty. And, but they did incur a lot of uh, criticism. And I, I think that's very important because I think a lot of the dumbing down of the curriculum and the equity grading and all of this effort we're seeing is an effort. I know this sounds kind of far-fetched, but I've been in academia 40 years. It's an effort by an entrenched class to be condescending to people who were coming into that class because they're they're advocating educational methodologies that are doomed to failure and will not give a person that was not exposed to them the tools to compete and excel. And I think people know that. 
So when they say we're not, we're going to have classics majors, but we're not going to have Greek required, that's happening now. That tells a young student, poor white kid, Mexican American kid, African American, middle class, whoever they are, that tells them that for the, they're going to be stigmatized as a classicist. So when they go write a book, somebody's going to review it and say, well, this is a great book, but the, the author's lack of firsthand knowledge of primary sources is a fatal flaw. And it's going to be true. And so this is what's scary right now that under the guise of equity and inclusion and fairness, we're not allowing people the rigorous opportunities that will make them excel in any field that they choose. And I, that's what I've been very worried about the last 20 years. You know, I have to say that um, it's amazing to hear you talk about the transference of those skills uh, you know, I was just thinking to myself the other day, if you can get through one of the uh, naughtier, not naughty, but naughtier pieces of text from a, a late Shakespeare play like Cymbeline, then when you're handed an audition uh, with a bunch of legal or medical jargon, then it's like nothing. You know, you've done the work on Oscar Wilde, you've done the work on Shakespeare, you've done the work on, on, um, on Sophocles, and you're able to activate that language in a way that most people can't. And I have to say, as a minority, uh, from, a, from a humble background, uh, I, I myself have also been stunned by the level of condescension by these people because what they're doing now, uh, they want to quote unquote decolonize these curriculums. It's reached up into even our, our elite uh, um, acting training institutions. And, um, but this attitude is even pervasive um, among uh, people who share the same ethnic background where it's not even, it's, it goes deeper than you are merely a classicist. They're telling you now that you're not even black or that you're not politically black. Um, you know, you're part of the out group and you don't belong. And um, when we were training and we would learn, you know, uh, uh, standard American speech or, you know, how to um, how to speak with distinction is what the, the book by Edith Skinner is called in order for us to be able to, uh, to handle these texts. Um, you know, the, among the students, it was like, you know, I feel as though I'm talking white and I'm thinking to myself, no, what you're doing is you're arming yourself with more tools to be able to be more employable in a career path in which employ employment is the exception and not the rule. And um, so it's the classic story of the, um, what is it? The, the, the bigotry of low expectations where it they're, is. where they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're shortchanging people, uh, but, but doing it under the guise of something that's good for them, which I think is really insidious. But it's really important that when people do that, then, when I would have classes, I'd have classes with 70-year-old, 80-year-old people who would take it as adults. I'd have all different races and all of these distinctions that are so accentuated in modern society, age, race, tribe, gender, disappear in a class because they were it, the languages were difficult. They were helping each other. It's sort of like if you look at African-American actors that were supposedly in an age and I shouldn't say supposedly, veritably, in an age where there were restrictions based on bias, say Sidney Poitier or Denzel Washington. And you look at the certain movies they've been in. I, I was thinking, I was watching the other night, Lilies of the Field with uh, Sidney Poitier. They have an, an ability that was unmatched in their generation of any actor, white or black. So they were, and what they had done then is they kind of made a diminution of race. They said race doesn't matter. Anymore. It's just talent. And talent is not specific. It's not predicated on race at all. And they transcended almost everything. And it's amazing that when you see 
white actors who say we need so many black people in this group and this group, none of them could act at that level. And it's also no surprise that they got, they incurred a lot of criticism in their own, not just from people of their of African-American, but of whites too, that felt that they were, they were doing things that whites did all the time I and mean, cash in for big money movies sometimes, or not always go to the stage and things like that. But what I'm getting at is that excellence cuts a lot of ties and it's a, a ticket to the human experience that, that makes almost everything superfluous. And when I would have Mexican-American students and I sent about 55 to the Ivy League and they would call me and they would say, oh, I don't need to go to everybody's named Buffy or they're all going to Nantucket or my professor comes late and acts like I'm, I need remedial help. And I'd always say to them, what do you want me to do? I'm about the only white guy left in Selma, California. It's all Mexican-American. Do I ever call you up and say, where's my role model? And I said, unlike those people who are perhaps biased and arrogant to you, a lot of Mexican people are in gangs. And so it's a matter of life and death for me when I walk out and I see a body in my orchard or somebody breaks into a barn, do I ever call you up and say, what am I gonna do? I'm a poor little white guy and I'm, I never do that. So why should you do that? And then they would engage you as educated people and they were very, they like you better, they being the person who calls you because you're not condescending. You just treat them as individuals as if you would anybody. And Whenever I had a student in class who would say, as a Chicana, I don't find Euripides relevant. I'd always say, as a white guy, I don't know what you mean. And then I did it again and again until they would stop. That would be a fireable offense. But what I'm getting at, I was trying to inculcate to students that tribalism is the enemy of excellence. It's the enemy of meritocracy. It's why most countries don't work. I once was in an Arab country. I've been to everyone, I think, except uh, I haven't been to Iran, which is not an Arab country. But every time I'd go places, if I did an interview or I met an official, I would say, what is wrong with this society? Why is Libya a mess? Why is Cairo dysfunctional? What in the world is going on here in Jordan? Why? And it wasn't the answer that you would think that, well, it's radical Islamism. None. It was always something to the effect we always hire our first cousin and there is no meritocracy so when we want to hire somebody in the bureaucracy or the university we hire somebody who's related and part of our tribe and that is something that i always and that seems to be true uh, it was true before we had affirmative action with the old boy network we had networks of people of mostly white who discriminated against Jews, for example, or people who discriminate against rural people. But that is the enemy of civilization is any decision that's made for reasons of tribal concerns and not meritocracy. And the way to defeat and to make sure there is equal representation is never by mandate, but by excellence. And so what's tragic right now in this, this diversity, equity, inclusion movement, we could have a Marshall Plan very easily for a fraction of the, the cost of the diversity czars, where we had maybe 500 private academies all over the inner city, where the people were, had Latin 
and classical acting and diction and uniforms and motivated teachers. And it could be very chauvinistic. People could say it wouldn't have to be racially chauvinistic, but said our purpose is to make you superior to anybody you encounter. And here's how to do it because it works. And that would be cheaper than all of these uh, other things we're doing. But some reason we won't do that. I don't know quite why we don't do that, but I have a suspicion that a lot of people that I have been in my last 40 years in the academic world, very wealthy, often white, they have a projection where they feel that they don't feel comfortable from, with people in a social milieu or their kids at school with or PTA meetings or whatever it is with people unlike themselves and they project and they abstract, they care and they're gonna make, it's kind of a, I guess the medieval world called it uh, penance or in other words, if you were a sinner in the Renaissance, you could buy a dome on St. Peter's Cathedral for a price and then you were exempted. So if you're a, a person that lives in Atherton or Cambridge and you're in a lily white area and you feel bad about that, then in the abstract you get penance for supporting views that make you feel good, but they can be very deleterious to people who have to suffer the consequences of that ideology. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, the that sort of condescending attitude, it, it's really rife in the entertainment industry where you have these white, I, I use the term, I, I rarely use the term progressive without quotation marks nowadays, but, um, you know, there's this idea that, um, you know, they, that they are comfortable with somebody like me, but only to a, a certain extent. And, um, and like you were saying before about the tribalism, I mean, it's rife within our industries. And I think that right now, I mean, you're seeing franchises like Star Wars, for instance, beginning to lose money. Uh, classic franchises like Doctor Who, which are popular, that are also losing viewership and ratings. And people like me uh, have become sort of pariahs because, you know, I'm saying, wait a minute, people, you're you know, we have this small, small cluster of people who have control of this cultural institution, but they're moving further and further away from the very kinds of people that, as you said, they'd be uncomfortable with. Um, I don't have that much time uh, left with you, but I want to switch yeah. gears a, a little bit yeah. Yeah. and um, talk about, because you mentioned the human experience. Yeah. And um, we, you know, we, we, there's a term that goes around called, uh, called being red-pilled, and people use it differently, but uh, generally it means uh, 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 becoming connected with uh, reality, uh, aka uh, seeing through quote-unquote left-wing lies. But, yeah. you know, my, I, I, came, I came to my red-pilling sort of innocently, and it ties back into this conversation about the classics, because once I began to read these old plays and do research around them, uh, I, I began to realize, this was over a decade ago, I said, wait a minute, um, you know, even though civilizations rise and collapse and customs change, cultures change, but what motivates people has fundamentally remained unchanged for thousands of years. And it, it, I, I feel as though that is what is... Uh, sort of being lost in all of this. I mean, I think Thomas Sowell said at one point that there's nothing older than the idea that something is new or hasn't happened before. Um, can you think of, what, what are some examples of uh, what the Greeks were writing about that um, say uh, that some of our progressive friends might be surprised to learn? Well, and I, I Tom and I had lunch because we worked in the same institution. We still are the same institution every other week for almost 20 years. We talked about things like that. Mm. One of the things that, struck me is that when you're in a pre-industrial society, um, you look at 
your whether you don't look at a radar picture you look at whether the birds are nesting early or late in the evening which direction the wind is how large the tide so the greeks were very empirical and they made decisions and uh, alternatives uh, courses of action based on what they perceived. The second thing was that they put a, such a high uh, premium on empiricism. It's very, very rare until the late Roman Empire to find somebody who pulls his punches or deliberately censors their language or their beliefs. They do it under the Roman Empire, and it's very clear that uh, a novelist like Petronius is not going to survive and somebody like Tacitus has to pull his punches. But in the Greek world, at least until the advent of Alexander, there's complete unfettered expression. There's no such thing as political correctness. And with that pre-industrial landscape, what it means is that people are constantly curious and they have certain ideas uh, about science, about mathematics, uh, about human nature that they perceive, and they just pursue it. And they're not really worried about who's who feels they're a victimizer, who's a victim, none of that. And it can be very, I'll give you one example, old age. We have these ideas of golden years. I can't find that anywhere in classical literature. If you read Solon or you read uh, Theognis, or it's basically you get ugly, you get weak, you get old, people shun you, you lose control of your bladder, you lose your memory, you can't hear and you have to find a way. Cicero wrote De Sinatucte about how to find dignity in old age. And he said, well, you know more and you can be a repository of advice or a custom, um, cumulative experience. But the point is that they never said these are gonna be the best years of your life. It wasn't. They contrasted it with rash uh, youth where you have phys physicality and exuberance without experience or moderation. But what I'm getting at is that that's is so refreshing to read literature where the author on any page can say something that is both based on some kind of data or empiricism or the natural world as they perceive it but you know that he's not lying to you that he's not trying to say something half measured and that makes it very engaging and timeless and the, the second thing is they're not interested in um they're not interested in what I would call the great work trivial thing. So if you, there, there's nothing comparable I, I can think of like the Kardashians or what our popular culture fixates on. It's always, if you're, if it's human relationships, it's sort of Hippolytus and Phaedra and, and the irony of a woman spurned and what she can do, the terrible things she can do and wreck people's lives. And something like that we couldn't do today because it would be considered sexist or unkind. And so what I'm getting, it's a free for all. And the one common denominator is they're trying to fathom predictable modes of human behavior. And that's didactic. I always tell my students, you know, if you're wondering why the more you like, uh, I would say to guys, the more you like a girl, the more you court her and the less she likes you. Do you ever think that you can find that answer in Greek tragedy? They will tell you that sometimes the more, it's that Indian expression. We, I live in an area of Sikhs and every time I talk to somebody, he says the same Sikh aphorism. If somebody has done something wrong, they always say, 
I don't know why he hurt me. I hadn't done anything nice to him lately. <laughs> and it was that idea that gratitude is often wanting. And when somebody has done you a benefit, then rather than repaying that, that magnanimity with reciprocal kindness, it's seen as a sign of weakness or condensate, and you punish it. Well, those are the inconsistencies and paradoxes in human behavior we never talk about. But they're everywhere, and we all know them, but we don't articulate them. But classical literature, especially tragedy, but also epic, articulates them. And Aristotle and his ethics tells you. And when you see people that always are bombastic and say, you should do this, you know, you read Aristotle's ethics, and he has a great line where he says, it's very easy to be ethical in your sleep. But he, he tries to argue that ethics without action or, or physicality or, or reification is worthless that it's just idle speculation. And it's a, pretty much an indictment of most of the university as, as it's evolved in the modern world. Yeah, you know, it's a, um, it's strange because, you know, you, you, you hear all these things and I've noticed the same thing myself. It's, it's so refreshing when you encounter texts from writers who did not have to, who, who actually wrote the truth and could tell the truth. And, um, you know, we would talk about you know, it, when I was in training about the, the, it's our job to be vessels for the human condition. And we were told all the time that a lot of people just, they're not willing to do it because so much of the human condition is quite ugly. And, you know, as we try to decolonize these curriculums and we try to, uh, you know, uh, get rid of this literature, we call it harmful or offensive or even dangerous. And like, well, that's, that's life. That's real life. Life is harmful. Life is offensive. Life is dangerous. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, Hippolytus, and I, I remember when I encountered that uh, that play. Um, it was during a lot of the uh, conversations about uh, the hashtag Me Too phenomenon and, and questions of consent and uh, and sexual impropriety, and uh, you know this idea that you were supposed to just uh, you know believe all the women, and yet here is this Greek uh, uh, story where this this boy's life is destroyed by uh, by a false accusation of sexual impropriety and um but we're not allowed to talk about that and you know it, it's not an indictment of all women it simply says that this sort of thing is possible and the more that we eliminate these works because we find them offensive or crude or 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 uh or that they clash with modern sensibilities that uh, the more that we are erasing um our knowledge of ourselves um well, Dr. Hansen, I, I appreciate uh, your time today. I know you have uh, many, many things to do. And I just want to um, thank you again and also assure you that uh, your work, all your work is not in vain. And uh, you, you, I don't know if you know the scope of your reach and, and who you're inspiring, but, but rest assured uh, you are having an impact. And uh, hopefully uh, people like yourself and uh, maybe myself can, uh, can carry uh, your ideas forward to the next generation and, and help them restore some sense of... Uh, <laughs> of empiricism and uh, the broad scope and depth and the universality of the human experience. I hope that's what we come to. Well, thank you very much and good luck to all your work. Thank you.